people who are last who become first. So like I said, we'll, uh, we'll move quickly since we're only going to do one section here. And the main point, if I can get you to walk away with one idea as we look at this, is that because salvation is first, the, the first become last and the last become first, to understand this, especially in this first half, I want us to walk away with the idea that because we are last, if we understand that, then we'll understand that salvation is a miracle of God. What we'll understand is that we have nothing good in us to earn salvation. We're last, and therefore we will be completely dependent on the only one who is good to work a miracle for us. Let's read the passage together. If your Bible's open, Matthew 19, I'll start reading in verse 16. Just then someone came up to him and asked him, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? He said to him, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He asked. Jesus answered, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your mother and father. And love your neighbor as yourself. I have kept all of these, the young man told him. What do I still lack? If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go and sell all of your belongings, give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. When the young man heard that command, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I assure you, it will be hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished. And they asked, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Let's pray. Dear Lord, what a sad story and simultaneously an incredibly joyous and hopeful pronouncement that you give us at the end of this. I pray tonight as we open this word that you will penetrate our hearts, show us the areas that we are like this rich young ruler. Strip that of us so that we won't be first in our own eyes, that we'll recognize our failures to keep your law. I pray that we will come to the point that we can say with the disciples, how in the world could we ever be saved? And then I pray that you will Build in our hearts the faith and confidence to say it is impossible with us, but with you all things are possible. Give me clarity as I speak. Give us all open hearts to receive your word. In your name I pray, amen. A 
Let's just walk through the story together. The story opens with this man. It says someone came up to him and him being Jesus to ask a question. We, t- we don't know exactly who this person is, but we call him the rich young ruler. Uh, and we do that. Uh, my, my Bible actually has a subtitle that says the rich young ruler. The reason we, we call him the rich young ruler, one is we know that he's rich and young because of verse 22. It calls him the young man. He, had, he goes away grieving because he had many possessions. So we know he's rich and he's young. Uh, we, we get the ruler because Luke gives the same story, but throughout the story, instead of calling him man, calls him the ruler. And so we can tell that this is the same person. He's a ruler. He's a rich young man. So we call him, this is the story of the rich young ruler. And he comes up to Jesus, and he asks a question. And really, this, this question is far more important than who he is. What's the most important thing is the question that he asks. He asks Jesus, what good... What good must I do to have eternal life? What good thing can I do to have eternal life? And right off the bat, our red flag should be going up. He's asked the exact wrong question, right? This is the wrong question. In fact, we know he's on the wrong path here because he thinks there's something good that he can do to get to heaven. But we'll keep tracking and see how Jesus answers this. Jesus asks ask him a question and really gives the answer to his question here. Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Jesus says, why are you asking me about what good you can do to get in heaven? Why are you even asking me about what good is? Don't you know that there is only one who is good? Jesus' point seems to be to say, don't you recognize that if you're trying to be good, that there is only one person who's good? Jesus seems to be saying, don't you recognize that your question is all wrong? You're asking me, what good can I do to get into heaven? And Jesus says, don't you understand there's only one who is good? Some translations say that, uh, they translate this to say that Jesus said, why do you call me good? Others say, why do you ask about what is good? But either way, Jesus' point here is, don't you know that there's only one who is good? Right off the bat, Jesus is trying to erode this man's confidence that there's anything good he can do. There's only one who is good. I do want to be clear here. Um, If your translation says, why do you call me good? This isn't Jesus saying, I'm not good, right? The entire book of Matthew is written to teach us that the one who is good is God, and Jesus is God. Jesus' point here is simply to say, you are not good. Only God is good. In fact, if you want to be good enough to get into heaven, the standard of good that you have to reach is the standard of God's goodness. That's the only good there is. If we want to define good and you want to know how to get to heaven, be as good as God. But what does that look like? What would it look like if we were to be as good as God? Well, Jesus says, I'll give you a starting point here. A starting point is if you want to enter into life, just keep the commandments. A starting point, if you want to look as good as God so you can get into heaven by your goodness, then just keep all the commandments. And immediately it seems like this young ruler thinks, well, wait a second, that's a little ridiculous. So he says, which commandments? There's a lot of them. 
And obviously nobody's going to keep them all. So which commandments do you really want me to keep, Jesus? And Jesus says, all right, let's just do the Ten Commandments. And he lists them. Uh, some of them, not even all of them. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your mother and father. And then he gives another commandment. It's not from the Ten, but it's a summary of the last part of the Ten Commandments. He says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the amazing thing is that this man says, I've kept all of these. I've kept all of He says, I've never murdered. I've not committed adultery. I've never stealed. I've never, bore, never told a lie. I've honored my entire life. I've honored my mother and father. And I've always loved my neighbor as myself. This man is first in his own eyes. This man believed that he is essentially a good person, that he is essentially like God, that he has kept the commandments. I have to think there's no possible way that he was in the audience of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus goes through those commandments and said, not committing adultery is never looking lustfully. Not committing murder is never harboring anger or saying cross words about your brother. I don't think that he has his mind wrapped around what the law really requires of him. But really, the main point that I'm seeing from this guy here is that he thinks he's good. But there seems to be a little bit of uneasiness here. Because while he thinks he's good, it seems like he's not getting the response from Jesus that he wants. Because he's come to Jesus and say, what do I need to do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And he lists off these commandments, and he says, I've kept them all. He would, you would think Jesus would say, wow, that's pretty impressive. You're def- if you've kept all the commandments, you're definitely in. This guy's thinking, based on my track record, Jesus needs to be giving me the recognition that I, of anybody, should be qualified to get into the kingdom of heaven. But I don't think he's getting that from Jesus. And the reason I don't think so is because he looks at Jesus and says, well, then what do I lack? In other words, in this interaction between him and Jesus, he can tell that while he is thinking that Jesus should be impressed, he's not feeling that Jesus really is impressed. All right, Jesus, if I really need to impress you to get into heaven, what do I really need to do to be impressive to you? What do I need to be, do to be impressive enough to God to get into heaven? Jesus says to him, if you want to be perfect, right, we've already talked about this, if you want to have, if you want to be as good as God, the standard of God's goodness, which is perfection, then this is what you need to do. Go and sell all of your belongings and give them to the poor, then you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. Jesus says, if you want to be as perfect as God, just do one more of these commandments. Sell everything you have and follow me, which ultimately would just demonstrate that you're keeping the first commandment, that you have no other gods before me. But at this one, the man turns away, he walks away sad because he had many possessions. What Jesus has done is he's uncovered the truth here. Jesus has shown you think that you've kept the commandments 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, but you failed to keep commandment number 1. You won't even follow me because you love your money way too much. 
You have an idol. There is something that you love more than you love the God who made you. The man realizes this, and he walks away sad. Jesus continues the story, or the conversation there, even after this man walks away, because he knows that this is a teaching time for his disciples. And he tells them, I assure you that it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I've heard some people give some interesting interpretations of Jesus' comment that it will be easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Um, But honestly, I'm not sure why we need something interesting here. It seems to me plain that Jesus is saying it is impossible for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven. It is as impossible as it would be for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And I think that we can see that that is <clears throat> what Jesus intends because the disciples think, well, then nobody can be saved. And Jesus says, exactly. It's impossible for men to be saved. You can never work yourself You can never work hard enough, try hard enough, keep enough laws to impress God so much that he says, I need this guy in heaven. This guy deserves to be here. There is no amount of work you can do. It is impossible for you to get yourself to heaven. Takes a miracle. Jesus says, though it's impossible for men This is possible for God. And from this story and this interaction, I think we can come away with um, two major principles. Two, uh, and really I'm going to give us, or maybe three, maybe I'll talk about three, but two major ways that I want us to think through how is this going to affect the way we interact with God. The first principle that I want you to consider is that if you think you could have done better than this rich young ruler, then you have entirely missed the point, right? If you look at this rich young ruler and say, he just wasn't willing to give up enough, he just wasn't willing to sacrifice enough to follow God, he just wasn't willing to try hard enough or do enough, then you've missed the point of this whole story. The point of this story is not that if you can just work a little bit more, you can get there. The point of this story is that no matter how much you work, you will never meet the standard of God. It's impossible. When I say it's impossible, I want to explain the kind of impossible that I mean here. When I was in high school, there were some boys, they were maybe four or five years younger than me. There were two twin boys that were really good at basketball, and it was always their goal to dunk. One day they wanted to dunk the ball, but I'm a pretty short guy, and these guys were way short, even compared to me, but they were five years younger, and I always thought they'll never dunk. That's like an impossible thing, but every day they went out and 
they jumped rope and ran stairs and did little jumping exercise. They bought these special shoes to make them jump higher. And I think by the time they were in 10th grade, they were both dunking basketballs. And I thought, wow, they, just, they did what I thought was impossible, and they've done it. That's not the kind of impossible that we're talking about here. Right? We're not talking about the kind of impossible that you can achieve if you really work hard at it. This is the kind of impossible that would be them dunking a ball if the goal is on the moon and they're jumping from the earth. This is the kind of impossible that it doesn't matter how much hard work you do. This is the kind of impossible that is like squeezing a literal camel through a literal needle. It just doesn't happen. This is absolutely impossible. This isn't within the realm of hard work and discipline. If you want to get into heaven, keeping the law is a is not an option for you. You cannot get to heaven and say, God, look at all the good things I've done. Aren't you impressed? The point of this story is to convince you that heaven on your own is absolutely impossible. You're not better than this rich young ruler. But it also, and this is my second major point, that though it is impossible for man, Jesus ends with, but all things are possible for God. Terry, I asked you a little bit ago to pull up a slide for me uh, from this song. The reason that this is impossible for us but it's possible for God, is that salvation exists for him to demonstrate that he is a powerful, miracle-working God. I'll, I know I asked him to put it up now. I'm going to explain this slide in my next point, so let me just hold it for a second. But... Let me, let me ask you to think with me. How could this rich young ruler's story have gone differently? How could he have approached Jesus and got a different response? He comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, uh, or, or good te- what good must I do to get in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says to him, Why do you ask me about what's good? Don't you know that only God is good? And what he goes into is a defense of his goodness. I've kept all the laws. I've done my best. And he tries to convince Jesus that he is good. That was the wrong approach. What he could have said is, I know. That's the whole problem, Jesus. I know that God is the only one that's good. And I particularly know that I'm no good. That's why I've come to you. I need help. There is no way for me to get to God because I'm not good enough. This is the story that we've seen playing out time and time again in in the book of Matthew where Jesus will go to a woman and she'll say, Jesus, can I just have the scraps that fall from your table? No, this isn't for you. You're just a Gentile woman. She said, but even the dogs eat the scraps from your table. He said, no, that's the kind of faith I'm looking for. Or Jesus says to the, the Pharisees, say, why does he eat with the sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus says, don't you know that a doctor doesn't come for healthy people? He comes for sick people? 
you don't even understand what it means that I desire mercy and not sacrifice is what Jesus says to them. Jesus is trying to get us to wrap our head around the idea that the whole reason that Jesus died on the cross was to save people. The whole reason he came to earth was to save people. It would not make sense for Jesus living in heaven with God to take on the form of a servant, man, come to be crucified, all to tell us, y'all are doing a good job, keep it up. It wouldn't make sense for the God of the universe to submit himself to death if we didn't absolutely need his help. And so he says, until you come to me as a person who cannot have help except through me, then you will forever be this rich young ruler, lost, entrapped by your own belief of your goodness. The second point I was, I've been trying to emphasize here, the first point is that if you think that you could do better than the rich young ruler, you're mistaken. Jesus points to tell us none of us are righteous. None of us can earn salvation. My second point that I've tried to explain and I've tried to make is that because of Jesus, though, there is still hope. While salvation is impossible for us, through us, with God, all things are possible. If we will confess our sin and ask his miracle-working help, that he will turn us into new creations, he offers salvation. Tonight, if you've shown up and you think, I have never, ever confessed to Jesus that I am in desperate need without any room for hope whatsoever outside of him, you've shown up like this rich young ruler. You've shown up thinking, God must be fairly impressed with me because I've done a good job. You could walk away from here, however, insured of eternity in heaven. And all you need to do is confess, I have no hope outside of a miracle. But if you will work a miracle in my heart, God, if you will work a miracle in my life, then not only can I have hope, I can have absolute confidence because God never fails. I want to make one last point here, and this is where we'll talk about the slide. Um, I told you this is a half of a sermon because the rest of this passage, this is, this is begun with explaining how we get into salvation, how we become Christians. But the focus of this whole text really isn't for people who are non-Christians that want to become Christians. The focus seems to be to Jesus' own disciples. He's saying, you have forgotten what it means to become a Christian. You have forgotten that the first will be last and the last will become first because you have forgotten that the only way for you to become a Christian is an absolute miracle. I think it was true in the disciples' life. We'll see that. But I'll, I'll tell you, it's true in my life often, and I know the, one of the evidences of it is the way I sometimes view people's testimonies. Sometimes you'll have somebody share a testimony here, especially when, um, well, Teen Challenge, those guys will come in and they'll give a testimony of how God, they, they were in the worst of all possible worlds. 
that they were, uh, one guy was about to, I think, kill his own family in order to score drug money to buy more drugs. And God saved him and pulled him out of this. And I think my testimony is nothing like that. These, these guys are real miracles. These guys are real trophies for God's mercy. They're the evidence that God can change somebody. And I think, me, I'm, I don't have a testimony. Nothing like that. And what I realize is that has betrayed a lie in my mind. And what has happened is I've begun to believe myself to be a lot like the rich young ruler. Who I've basically kept all the commandments. I just needed a little bit of nudge to get over the top. But then I was basically good. So God really scored well for me. I think that many of us, when we sing the song we sang this morning, this is, there is a fountain. I think we sing this, but I'm not sure that we mean this. The, the lyrics were, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. That, that is talking about a, there's a thief that was on the cross and he's dying, and the fountain was God's blood who paid for this dying thief who was being executed for his crime, a guy on death row, meets Jesus and is radically saved while on the cross. God can work miracles. And then the next line says, and there may I, though vile is he. And I wonder, do I really think that I'm as vile as that man? I sang it this morning. There may I, though vile is he. Do I, wonder, do I really think when God saved me, it took a miracle? I wonder if I think, God, thanks for that little bump that got me over, I, you got me over the hump, but I, I did a lot of that because I was a pretty good guy. If that's the way we think, if we have trouble saying, and there may I, though vile is he, then I think we are doing an injustice to God and to ourselves. We're doing an injustice to God because the purpose of salvation is not to collect in heaven a bunch of people who are really, really good. The purpose of heaven, the primary purpose of heaven, is to collect trophies to the amazing grace of God. Right? We, I know this because the reason that God created the world was not for the glory of the world he created. It was for the glory of the creator, right? God didn't create me because he thought I was going to be awesome. He created me so that he could show how awesome he is through me. Well, how can God show how awesome he is through me? By my awesomeness? No. Through his willingness to love me and save me in spite of my complete lack of awesomeness. Right? My, not by my righteousness, but by his righteousness, which was so amazing and abounding that it could even cover me. When I do not view myself as a vile sinner who could only be saved by the miraculous work of God, then what I am suggesting is that there are some trophies in heaven that are more about the people than the one who earned the trophy. Or at least were the dingy, not very good trophies, were the participation trophies of God. 
and not the most valuable player trophies, right? That I want to point out that my life is an absolute miracle because it's through that that I recognize that God deserves the utmost glory. I also believe that not only are we shortchanging God when we think I can't relate with this vile sinner, we're shortchanging ourselves. And this is really stealing some of the thunder of the next message that we'll look at. But Jesus says many who are last will be first. And what he is suggesting is that when I wrap my head around the idea that I am a sinner, vile as the thief on the cross, that that actually gives me the the ability to have the most fruitful, joyful, happy relationship with God possible. When I think that God loves me in spite of me, then I am in the best position to fully experience the love and presence of God himself. When I think that God is with me because I've earned it, then I diminish my ability to truly experience the love of God. The person who is first, who thinks most highly of themselves, is last in the kingdom. But the person who is last is first because he brings the most glory to God and receives the most blessing from God's incredible, amazing grace. So what I want to do now is is to close, and and as I do, I want to ask you to consider a couple ways of responding. Every time we open God's word, I think it's important for us to ask, so what do I do? How do I respond to that? I I hope there may be someone in this room who would recognize that I've never confessed that I'm a sinner, a vile sinner, like the man on the cross, desperately in need of a miracle in my life. If you've never made that confession, you've never recognized that I need God, will you make that tonight? Will you talk to me or Pastor Johnny or Pastor, or anyone in this room, just, just find somebody and say, I want to confess that I need a miracle worker. And will you just pray with me and ask God to work a miracle in my life? There's a second group of us in here that we've long ago confessed that we need a Savior. <clears throat> right? We've long ago made this initial confession, but over time we have recognized that I have less and less identified with this thief on the cross. It's harder and harder for me to think that God worked a miracle in my life, and I feel more and more distant from the people who I see struggling around me because I think I have my act together. And what we are doing when we delude ourselves this way is we are stealing God's glory, and we are stealing our own happiness. And the way that we respond to that is we confess All over again, we come to God and say, I've become a thief of your glory by trying to gather glory for myself. And you beg him, restore anew to me the joys of my salvation. Remind me again that you loved me when I was unlovable. And that I'm not particularly lovable now, but you love me anyway. So as I pray, uh, the music team can come up and we will stand and sing. But I also want to invite you to come to the altar and just confess. 
and also rejoice and thank God for his incredible miracle that he's working in your life. Let me pray, and then we'll stand and sing together.